John chapter 8. Let's get there in the Bible together. We're thankful for all the Lord has done. It's been a great week as we just watch God do amazing things. And as we look around the world, you know, sometimes uh, we look at the events around us and we get discouraged or disheartened, don't we? How many of you saw the events this week uh, and you were pretty, pretty discouraged by what you saw? I'll be honest, as an American, my heart just sank uh, and I was just brokenhearted uh, over what we viewed. But as a Christian, my heart rejoices. And you say, why? Well, because God is in control. He's in control of this situation. And as we look forward to his return, he is finishing putting some of those last puzzle pieces together. And I'm telling you, it's not a time of discouragement as a Christian, but a time of encouragement, a time where we're looking forward for that trumpet to sound and for the Lord to meet us in the air. Amen. And so we're looking forward to that blessed, blessed day. And so I hope that as you, as a believer, if you're a believer here this morning, you can rejoice in everything because he says in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And so we have reason to rejoice today. In John chapter 8, we're, gonna, uh, we're actually going to pick up the last verse of John chapter 7, verse 53, and then we're going to read through verse 11, and we're going to find a very common uh, story here today, something, uh, an incident that happened in Jesus' ministry in his life that probably many of us are familiar with. There's been books written about it. There have been movies uh, where it's portrayed this incident, and, and as we see this today, I think we can be encouraged by one of the aspects of our Savior that we see, and that's His wonderful forgiveness. Bruce Goodrich was being initiated into the cadet corps at Texas A&M University. One night in this initiation process, uh, Bruce was forced to run, literally run until he dropped, and he never got up again. He died that night. Before he ever got into college, before he ever began, and a short time uh, after the tragedy, Bruce's father uh, wrote a letter to the administration, the faculty and student body in the corpse of the cadets, and he said, and I quote, I would like to take this opportunity to express the appreciation of my family for the great outpouring of concern and sympathy from Texas A&M University and the college community over the loss of our son, Bruce. We were deeply touched by the tribute paid to him in the battalion, and we were particularly pleased to note that his Christian witness did not go unnoticed during his brief time on campus. He goes on to say, I hope it will be some comfort to know that we harbor no ill will in the matter. We know our God makes no mistakes. Bruce had an appointment with his Lord and is now secure in his celestial home. And when the question is asked, why did this happen? Perhaps one answer will be, so that many will consider where they will spend eternity. You know, I think I shared that today as we think about forgiveness. What a powerful moment of forgiveness this father had. To lose his son to uh, a initiation process, uh, to lose his son so tragically, and yet to have such great forgiveness in his heart doesn't come from man, it comes only from the Lord. It came because he knew the forgiveness that his own father gave him. He knew the, own, the forgiveness that he received from Jesus Christ. And as a result, he was willing to, to forgive as well. This kind of forgiveness is almost heard of, unheard of today in the secular world, isn't it? To forgive those that have hurt us is, is, is just unheard of. As a matter of fact, we are encouraged to hold on to bitterness. This week on Thursday, as our president made an, a, a, a speech, he addressed the nation regarding the attacks that uh, happened in Kabul. And he said this, and I quote as part of his speech, 
To those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this, we will not forgive. We, we will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. I will defend our interests and our people with every measure at my command. Now we listen to that, and as American, we say, yes, that's right. But as a Christian, I say, oh, Lord, help us. Because if we choose not to forgive, that means we harbor bitterness. If we choose not to forgive, we rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and instantly we are in sin. As we look at this, I want to remind you that Satan wants you to hang on to bitterness. He desires for you to, let, to never let go of your anger, your resentment, because if you forgive, Satan loses and Christ gets the victory. So today we turn journey back together into the temple with Jesus Christ and we're going to sit at His feet as He's teaching and we'll listen as, uh, as those bring in a woman accused of adultery, caught in adultery, and then we're going to see the forgiveness that Christ offers her. Let's look in John chapter 7 and verse 53. May I remind you by, uh, from last time, we were just finishing up the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and that's where we, fin we finish up verse 53. And every man went into his own house. And so that feast was over. This, this, uh, many people had gone to their own home. And then verse number 1, we pick up, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came into the temple, and, he, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? By this, and this they said, tempting him that they might have uh, to accuse him. But Jesus stooped, uh, stooped down with his, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto him, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's stop together and pray. As we look here today, Father, we recognize uh, we are this woman. In our sinfulness, our rebellion, Lord, and oftentimes, Lord, we stand accused. But I'm thankful for Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm thankful that through His shed blood on the cross, Lord, today we have forgiveness. God, what great hope we have today. That though accused, though, Lord, though we stand condemned, Lord, we can be forgiven. And so today as we gather in the Word of God, I pray that You would encourage us as we just continue to seek, Lord, the Savior. And seek, Lord, to honor and glorify His name. May you perform a change in those lives that stand condemned today. We love you, Father, and thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. 
As we look at this tremendous incident in the life of Christ, we are given a wonderful picture uh, of the wise, loving, and forgiving Savior. Because wrapped up in this drama is the uh, immorality, the hypocrisy, and forgiveness, all wrapped up in this one story. And this story is not as much about the adulteress, and it's not as much about the hypocrisy of the leaders, but the central figure here is Jesus Christ. And we want to look at him today. And so this passage shows us his humility. It shows us his wisdom. It shows us the, his indictment. And then it shows us finally the forgiveness that he offers. And so we're going to look here today in, in just the very beginning. We're starting in verse 53. And we're going to look here at, at what uh, a great Savior we have through his humility. Notice that everyone went to their own home. I love that the Bible points us out in verse 53, and every man went unto his own house. And verse 1, it says, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. Everyone had a place to go. Everyone had a, 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 a place where they could resort to, where they could uh, get a little rest. We did some traveling this week, and I felt like Dorothy, at the end of her journey, she said, there's no place like home. Can I get an amen to that? There's no bed like your bed. There's no, no uh, kitchen like your kitchen if you're, if you're the cook of the family. There's no home, no, no home like your home. Well, Jesus didn't necessarily have a home. Not here on this earth anyway. Perhaps this was a night for him where he was in personal retreat for prayer. We see this often in his life. We know that he oftentimes retreated and spent nights away in prayer. But we don't know uh, exactly uh, uh, exactly what he was doing there that night, but we do know that this is where he resorted to. Acts chapter number 1 and verse number 12 reveals to us that uh, it was from this place, this Mount of Olives, that one day he would ascend back to the Father. In Acts one twelve it says, Then returned they into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Uh, not many days from hence, he would be ascended back into heaven from, from whence he came. And then later, here in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4, it will be here on the Mount of Olives that, that, uh, that His feet will be planted once again when He returns to this earth and destroy the armies of the world. It says, And His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And so here in this moment, though, we don't see of a home for Christ here, but it was a place of retreat for Him to go and to pray to be renewed, restored. And we're never told of even where he slept that night. Matter of fact, if you remember, there was uh, a scribe that wanted to follow Christ, one that wanted to uh, know where he was going. And, and Christ said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. You see, he never concerned himself with those things that we concern ourselves with. We're, we, we worry about our homes and having the right home and being in the right location and all of these different things. And uh, we worry about having the right, uh, the right car to drive and, and the right clothes to wear. So people think the most about us. But Jesus, as the creator of all things, had no place of his own disdain. Uh, we, didn't, we don't see him as a wealthy man, just a man of humility. Remember Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 he is the incarnate God. He said, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, Jesus, as God, left the glories of heaven and came humbly to this earth. We see him at his birth 
Remember, that lowly place of a servant as he was there wrapped in these swaddling clothes, literally the clothes they would often wrap a, uh, the corpse in after someone had expired. And, and Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, he says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. I remind you that Jesus, his origins, uh, uh, when he was here on this earth, were very humble. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. But he was not even given the reception the most humble of dignitaries, human dignitaries would have received. John 1.11 says, He came into his own and his own received him not. This is a picture of his humility, his love for all men, and that he was willing to be emptied of himself and leave the glories of heaven so that he come to earth for us. So here it is. As Christ enters into the temple that no heralds announced His coming, no fanfare was made over His entrance. He simply, the Bible says, came and He taught. Imagine being there. Now, Jesus had taught there before. He was not a stranger in the temple. The, those that were around, they were familiar with His ministry. And when Jesus spoke up, uh, people were excited. Uh, this week we got to hear Dr. Robert Jeffers at, um, at the Ark Encounter. And we uh, listened to his preaching and got to hear a couple of... Uh, uh, a couple of groups do some singing. And as we were at church, uh, well, not churches, we were just in that service there together, uh, we got to hear uh, him preach and got to meet Dr. Ken Ham uh, and some other, uh, other folks. Listen, these are just humans, and we honor them. No one honored Christ necessarily that day. Do we honor Him? Will we honor Him today in our heart, in our life, in our society? Will we honor Him as we choose to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our strength, our mind, our soul? Will we choose to honor Him? Will we love Him? But this day in the temple, nobody necessarily honored Him. They came. They listened. Those that were there that day, no doubt, were intrigued by His teaching. Maybe they were in the court and they came over and they came near to hear what He was taught. Matter of fact, it says this in verse number 2, And early in the morning He came again to the temple, and all the people came unto Him, and He sat down and taught them. It was almost as if He entered into that temple courtyard, and as He did so, those that were there knew that He was a great teacher. And so they all, from all the corners, they left the rabbi they were sitting under, and they came to listen to Jesus as He taught. And, and as He began to sit down, because the custom was for the teacher to sit and everyone else to stand and listen. I like that. Y'all don't. But I could, I could take a load off and y'all could stand for a while. We got this backwards. But the rabbi would sit and then the students would stand and, and they would listen in rapt attention. But then as Jesus walked in, it's like they began to whisper to one another, oh, there's Jesus. Rabbi, forgive us. We're going to go listen to this other rabbi. We're going to be a part of what he's teaching. And all the people there in the courtyard came to listen. He, would, he just simply walked in and began to teach humbly. We're not given the content of his teachings. We don't know what it was there. In my mind, though, I think about what the lesson that we're about to learn about forgiveness. I can't help but think that Jesus was making a correlation between the law and forgiveness. The law and the need uh, and, and the need for a sacrifice so that there is forgiveness. I can't help in my mind but Jesus Christ laying out what Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 lays out for us in the New Testament. He's laying out this need that, listen, uh, except for the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There must be some blood shedding here so that you can have forgiveness of sins. And then entrance these Scribes, these Pharisees, as they cast this woman at his feet with the accusations brought against her. 
Listen, as he taught, he didn't have any gimmicks. He didn't have any giveaways. He didn't, he didn't have any miracles. He just simply taught. And, his, and throughout Jesus' ministry, we see he exhibited a kind of humility that was vastly different from any of the scribes or any of the Pharisees. And this is, will be different, and this is a different Christ in, in some respects than what we'll see in the second coming. In the first coming, he comes humbly as a lamb, ready to, to lay down his life for all of us. But in the second coming, he comes gloriously as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? We're looking forward to the day when our Savior will literally reign on the earth for 1,000 years. Man, what a day that will be. Man, you, you may like a president we've had today or in the past. I, I, I don't care what you think about our presidents right now as long as you honor the one that God's given us just as we're commanded. But this is what I do know. One day I'm going to have a perfect king. And he will be glorious. Listen, he performed nothing special. He just simply came in and taught. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30 says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Every eye will see Him. Revelation 1-7, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, amen. And Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31 says, And when the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the, uh, the throne of His glory. Hallelujah. What a day that will be when our Jesus we shall see. Amen. But for now, we see Him in the temple. In humility, teaching. And it's in this moment he shows great wisdom. Wisdom because the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were always trying to trip up Christ. They were always trying to find reason to bring accusation against him. They hated Christ. They hated his message. They hated what he stood for. They hated the attention that he received. And so Christ walked with wisdom. And so interrupting these teachings are the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes were sometimes called lawyers. Um, and they were supposed to be experts in interpreting the law. They were Most of the time they were Pharisees. Now there were four major religious sects in the Jewish first century uh, Judaism. There was Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were Zealots, and there, there were the Essenes. And the Pharisees were noted chiefly for their strict adherence for the Mosaic law and oral traditions. They weren't great in number. There were only about 6,000 at the time of Herod the Great, according to Josephus. But they were the dominant religious influence among the Jewish people. And so, with the exception of maybe Nicodemus, we see in the book of John that the Pharisees were always hostile to John's gospel. Matter of fact, look at some of the references with me in John chapter 7 and verse 32. It says, and the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take him. Later in chapter 12, in verse number 42, it says, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. There was a, a, a hatred toward Jesus. There was a bigotry toward him. In fact, it was the Pharisees that sent out a band to capture Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane as he prayed in John chapter 18 and verse 3. It says, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
You see, they were the principal figures behind working in the background to bring a destruction to Jesus Christ. Those were were the men that were doing their very best to destroy the life of Jesus. Yet later, there uh, uh, there would be some of these that would believe. Later, we would see after Christ's resurrection that some Pharisees would believe in Christ. The most notable Pharisee that we know of is Saul of Tarsus, or as we know him today, the Apostle Paul. He would later trust in Christ. He was a Pharisee. And so the Pharisees viewed Jesus' popularity with great alarm. They didn't like him. They didn't like his message. They didn't fear. They feared both losing their influence with the people and they feared the retaliation of the Romans if if, if the Jews started following Jesus and this revolt. Therefore, we see these men come to a place where Jesus is preaching, where he's teaching there. And they bring this woman and they, she was caught, the Bible says, in the very act of adultery. And they, and they set her in the midst and they said, Master, this woman was taken in, in adultery in the very act. They said, listen, there is no question what the law says. And they, they quote the law to Jesus like he needs someone to quote the law to him. And, and they say in verse number six, uh, excuse me, in verse number five, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This, uh, this phrase, but what sayest thou, is emphatic in the Greek, and it is forcefully uh, used, and it is commanding in their adrenaline-laced brain here at the opportunity to stone this woman, and they're saying, listen, what would you say about this? What would you do about this? A couple of things must be remembered. The Word of God in the seventh commandment forbids adultery. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 says, thou shalt not commit Adultery. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 10 even pronounces the death penalty for all those that commit it. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So Jesus himself upheld this Old Testament condemnation of adultery. In fact, he even strengthened it and made the prohibition stronger when he condemns not just the physical act, but also the lustful attitude that conceives it. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, Jesus said, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So from a legal standpoint, these men were correct in saying that the woman deserved to die. But here is an obvious question. Maybe you've asked it, and I asked it as I read and studied through this. So if this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, where was the man? Why had they not arrested him and brought him before Jesus as well? Since the law demanded that both guilty parties be executed, why wasn't he there as well? And if, if it was justice that they sought, why would they even need to bring Jesus or, or bring this woman to Jesus at all? This is what would often happen. If there was, a, if there was a, an issue where they weren't sure about a, a judgment, they would often bring this, the case before a rabbi. And the rabbi would give his opinion before they took it to the court. But if it was an open and shut case like this appeared to be, then they would just simply take them straight to the court. They would, she would be condemned and then she would be, cru- uh, she would be killed. But why would they do all this? Because this was not a a, a case for them of just finding her guilty. They wanted to bring Jesus down. They wanted, and this is what the text says as well. This they said, tempting him 
that they might have to accuse him. Did you see that, their purpose in this? Not that, not that they cared about keeping the law, not that they cared about the purity, not that they cared about uh, forgiveness or any of those things. They simply desired to destroy Jesus, and this woman was a pawn in their hands. Now, we could talk a lot about hypocrisy here, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to see Christ in all of His glory revealed. His humility We see His wisdom. So how does He handle this? And this is where His wisdom is pretty amazing to see. Um, Look at Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3 in your Bible. It says, The Pharisees came unto Him, tempting Him, saying unto Him, It is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause. Remember, this is not the first time they tried to destroy him. They thought they'd set the perfect tribe time and time again. And, if he adju- and at this point, if he objected to stoning this woman, if he, uh, if, if he was, uh, had refused to follow the law, then they were, he was opposing the law and he would be discredited as the Messiah. On the other hand, if he had agreed with his accusers that she should be stoned, his reputation for compassion towards sinners would also be destroyed. So either way, in their mind, they're thinking, this guy is destroyed no matter what. He's either going to lose it with the people or he's going to lose his his credit as the Messiah. Remember Christ's ministry. This is what I love about our Savior. He didn't just hang out with the high and mighty. He, He says in John 10 that he is the good shepherd. A good shepherd spends time with the sheep. He loves on them. He visits them in their affliction. He's with them. And Matthew chapter 19 and verse over 9 and verse number 11, we see that he spent time with sinners. It says, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto the disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Or Matthew chapter 15 and verse 2, Why did the disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Listen, he spent time with these sinners. The second problem for Christ would be that the Jewish leaders also would report him to the Romans as having instigated a revolt in defiance of Roman authority. Because if he instigated this execution, if he was the one that said she must be stoned and people stoned her there on that moment, then they could point fingers at Christ and say, listen, he was the one that caused this uproar and the Romans would kill him. So the gauntlet was thrown down here and the challenge was issued, but how would he handle it? Remember a couple of things. Sometimes we like to take sin lightly in our world today. We like to say, well, sin isn't so bad. You know, a little white lie here. Uh, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, alcohol is okay here. It's not a big deal. But listen, God never takes sin lightly. And this story, this story doesn't say that, that it's okay to sin. It, it, God never justifies. As a matter of fact, I will remind you that God is holy. Psalms 99.9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. The word holy means separate from sin. His law is holy. Romans chapter 7 and verse 12 says, Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. But the law knows, knows nothing of forgiveness. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Listen, the Bible lays it out pretty clear. If we're going to follow the law, there's no forgiveness. There's no, there's no grace there because the law is black and white. The law is right or wrong. The law is yes or no. That's all there is. And so if he was to, to go against the law, then it would appear that he was not the Messiah. Remember what the law further declares in Ezekiel 18, 4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. So how does God 
forgive sinners without violating His holy law? The answer is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, His sacrificial death fully satisfied the demands of God's justice. Look in the book of Romans with me. We're going to be in several places there. and I, just don't, I want you to see some of these for yourself. I'm going to run through this. Point two is very long. We've got two more after this and they'll be shorter. So just hang with me. There's a lot here I want to share with you about God's forgiveness. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. It says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Now look at Romans chapter 3 with me in verses 24 and 25. He says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. You see... What God was sharing with us is those that put their faith in Him are able to be justified, just as if you'd never sinned is a way to remember that. God could do this because of 1 Peter 2.24 teaches us this, who His own self bear our sins in His own body on the tree. You see, Christ died in our place for us. That's what Jesus did. How can God keep the law and offer forgiveness only through Jesus Christ. Listen, Mohammed didn't save anybody. His teachings have brought nothing but destruction and harm, and we're seeing that played out in the Middle East today and around the world. Listen, Buddha didn't save anybody. He might have been kind and benevolent and fat and all of those things, but I'm telling you, he didn't save a soul. Only Jesus Christ saves only through Him, only through His sacrifice on the cross, because Jesus alone was God. Jesus alone was the Son of God who came to this earth, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfectly sinless life. Never once did He sin. And He willingly laid down His life on that cross. As the spikes were running into His, his, his hands, He could have at any moment gotten up. He could have at any moment walked away. Before He died, He could have come off of that cross. Before they put that crown of thorns on His head, He could have easily escaped those things. But instead He said, Father, not my will, but Thine be done. And as he laid his life down, he willingly did it for you and for me and for all of the world. That's what Jesus did. He, his own self bear our sins in this body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. You see, in Christ alone, that song we sang today, in Christ alone, there's divine justice and mercy. And in Christ alone, we see these things, this justice and mercy, they live in harmony. Because His sacrificial death paid the penalty for sin. You see, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, But the wages of sin is death. You know, we oftentimes, we look at our sin and we think, well, it's not so bad. God, God is a merciful God and God is gracious God and He's long-suffering and those things are right. But listen, God still hates sin. And he was willing to lay down on the cross to pay for your sin. As a child, there was a, I don't remember if it was Sandy Patty or who it was that sang a song, but I remember my mom singing it in church. And she'd often sing the song, Does He Still Feel the Nails? Yeah. 
every time I fail? Does he hear the crowd cry crucify? And I, and I think about that oftentimes as, as we perpetually, sometimes as Christians, we just uh, dabble in sin and we think, well, it's not so bad, it's not hurting anybody. Listen, I can get away with this. Nobody sees it. Nobody cares. Nobody, nobody, it's not affecting anyone, but it is affecting those around you and your relationship with God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 26, To declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God poured out His wrath against sin on Jesus so that He could pour out His grace and mercy on those who will believe. You see, God offers you today that forgiveness. Just as Jesus Christ was met with this woman, just as this woman was thrust down at His feet in the middle of His teaching, and He was demanded of an answer in that moment, so Jesus, as the divine Lamb of God, who was slain for the forgiveness of all men, offers forgiveness today. Revelation 3.8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus is that Lamb. But as we see this scene unfold, it reaches a climax here. As they demand, what do you say? And they would not let it go. We just see Christ simply stoop down in the dirt. And we see Him just begin to write something. And we don't know what He's writing there. We don't, we've speculated over the years, haven't we, preachers? We try to say, well, we know what He wrote there. He wrote the sins of those men that were all gathered there with stones in their hand. We, write, uh, we say something else that maybe He was, uh, he was writing something in that, uh, in that sand that would convict Him of their sin. Uh, you know, and, and as we, we think about that, honestly, we don't have a clue what He wrote. We just speculate. Some thought that maybe the Lord was acting out Jeremiah 17, 13, which says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed and they shall depart from me. Uh, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Some think that he was playing, uh, writing those out. But the most popular view is that he was writing, writing the sins of the woman's accusers. But we don't know. But as Christ stood up, he fixed them with what I can only imagine as a piercing gaze. gaze and he boldly told them, He that was without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. Then he stooped back down and began to write on the ground. Now, why is this significant? Why is this important? Because in that moment, Christ upheld the law. Because he didn't deny the woman's guilt. And he, in a matter of fact, he broadened the law's power by exposing the sins of those accusers as well. But it also avoided the, child's of, uh, the charge of instigating an insurrection and, and violation of Roman authority. And since the Lord put the responsibility back on the accusers, it spared the woman from being stoned for her sin. Jesus knew, according to the law, the witness to a capital offense were be, to be the first to throw the stones at that guilty person. Remember, Deuteronomy 17, 7 says, "...in the hands of the witnesses..." Uh, shall be first upon him to put him to death. Listen, he knew that if they were the ones that caught her, then they were to be the ones that cast the first stone. He wasn't making sinlessness a requirement for carrying out the law, but it may have been that these accusers themselves were uh, guilty of adultery. If nothing else, they probably were guilty of the adultery of the heart. Jesus Answer didn't minimize her guilt. He, did, she, he didn't deny the law's sanctity, but it did cut the ground underneath the feet of those scribes and Pharisees by revealing that they were unfit judges and unfit executioners. 
Listen, these guys were guilty of hypocrisy. So let's look at his indictments, shall we? In this moment we have all been waiting for, it is this moment that we see and we hear. If you could just put yourself in this woman's shoes, on the floor, on the ground, on her knees, maybe sobbing, sorrowful, maybe she was forced into the act, maybe it was a willing, uh, willingness that she went. We don't know, we don't know the backstory, but this is what we do know, is she was there on her knees before these men looking to condemn her. The stones began to fall. Those that had once picked up the stones that, to stone her, those that had once were ready to accuse her, began to be pricked by their own consciences, and they, the stones fell, and they quietly walked away. I think it's appropriate that the Bible records in verse number 9, and they which heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest. Why the eldest first? It may be that they were the first to realize they had suffered defeat, or it may be the first that they realized that they had a long list of sin behind them. But it also could be that they were just keenly aware of their own sinfulness as well. You see, there's a woman who not long before she died in 1988, she was very candid one moment in television. And I don't know this woman, maybe you knew her, but she died before I was old enough to care. Her name was uh, Marganita Lasky. Anybody know who she is? Okay. She was a, a secular humanist, she was a novelist, and she said this, and I quote, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. You see, there's many today who, who, like those Pharisees and those scribes who were gathered that, there, that day, ready to cast a stone, ready to, to bring conviction, but, they, but under conviction of their own sin, they walked away instead of receiving the forgiveness of God. You see, when we look at Christ today, we see His incredible forgiveness. Here in these last couple of verses here, as the beginning, uh, we see Jesus was left alone and the woman was standing in the midst in verse number 9 and verse 10. And when Jesus had lifted up Himself, He saw none but the woman and He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? They had all gone. They had all left. They had all departed. And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. The God of the universe, the one who is sinless, the one who is able to truly cast that stone, He says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Now, some people will read that and will think that Christ is making allowances for sin. God never gives us license to sin. The grace that God gives you is not a license to sin. Many in our Christian in the Christian world today say, well, I live in the, in the age of grace, so I'm able to do whatever I want with whoever I want, whenever I want. Listen, that is a lie from the pits of hell. Matter of fact, John chapter 3 and verse 17, I remind you that God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That was God's purpose for coming. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. We know that was God's purpose. But the liberating work of Jesus did not mean excusing the excusing of sin. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Some of the Christians there had this same thought at that time. And so Paul answers that when he writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
and he says very authoritatively, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And the whole chapter goes on to explain that when we are truly born again, we are here to live for Christ. See, what Christ was offering to this dear woman was forgiveness. He was offering her uh, a, an opportunity to know what it is to be forgiven. Oh, and, and I hope that one day we will see that she accepted God's forgiveness, that she went and she put her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She no longer uh, trusted in that old lifestyle, the old sinful lifestyle. But there is evidence here that Jesus says, after you believe, there must be a change. Evidence of a changed life is seen in a willingness to live a holy life. In the Christian leader, uh, Don Ratzlaff, retells a story of uh, Vernon Grounds came across in the miracle on the river Kauai. The Scottish soldiers were forced by their captors to labor on a jungle railroad. And they had really, the conditions were so, bored, uh, so terrible that they had degenerated to just barbarous behavior. They, they, were, uh, they were just basically destroying one another. But one afternoon, something happened. You see, because during that time, a shovel had gone missing, and so the officer in charge became enraged, and he made all of the men stand at attention, and he demanded that they produce the shovel, or somebody will confess to it. And, uh, but nobody in the squadron even budged. No one said anything. Matter of fact, so the, so the officer pulled out his gun, and he threatened to kill them all on the spot. And it was, officer that, it was obvious that the officer meant business. He was ready to kill whoever it was, if not, then all of them. Finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put his pistol back away. He picked up a shovel, and he beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivor picked up the, the bloody corpse, and they carried it away, and, and they went to the second tool checkpoint at this point. And when they counted the second time, there was no shovel missing. There just been a miscount at the first checkpoint. The word spread throughout the whole camp. Everybody had heard of what this man had done, the offer to give up his life so that they could all live, because obviously none of them had done it, but he was willing to take, it, take the death so that they could live. And it transformed the camp. Instead of from being against one another, it had a profound effect, and so the men began to treat each other like brothers. And when the allies finally swept in victoriously, the survivors, they looked like human skeletons. They lined up in front of their captors. And instead of attacking their captors, they said, and I quote, No more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. You see, a sacrificial love has transforming power. And now Christ, He stands here before this woman with just a few months hence where she would be willing to lay down His life and to die for this woman's sins. And not just her sins, but for your sins and my sins. And, and as Christ was willing to look at her and say, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. So He says to, the, to you today, because of the prince in His hands, because of the fact that He was willing to lay down His life, He stands here and will, is willing to say, listen, I won't accuse you if you believe on me today. You can be forgiven Completely. This is the offer of salvation that God offers to us. You can, like this woman, hear the stones, the accusing stones of Satan being dropped to the ground as Satan stands before you and says, Neither do I.
condemn you. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Heads bowed and eyes closed today. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're full of guilt. The Bible says for all